Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you noticed the shifts happening all around us in our culture? Skepticism of traditional institutions from the government to the media to churches is at an all-time high. While increasingly, we're told to discover our authentic self and live it out courageously. Universal truth claims sound like power grabs these days, while individual, personal truths are celebrated no matter how patently false they seem. Corrosive deconstructionism has decimated traditional virtues, traditional ethics, and traditional ways of making sense of the world. The only hero that remains to us is the triumphant victim who boldly stands against the majority shouting, This is who I am! You must accept me or we will take you down! Okay, so I hammed it up a little there. Not all expressions of postmodernism are so strident. Even so, what is going on? Pastor Jacob Ballard from Timberland Bible Church in Indiana will help us understand and engage with this incredible worldview shift that has occurred over the last few decades, increasingly in the last few years. Over the next four weeks, Ballard is going to share key insights from a class he taught at the Atlanta Bible College designed to help students understand and minister to our changing society. Here now is episode 370, Postmodernism Part 1, Worldview, with Jacob Ballard. Welcome, Jake Ballard, to Restitutio. Thanks for having me. So glad you could be here today. I'm really interested in this topic of worldview, postmodernism, the biblical worldview. These are really important subjects for us to decipher our confusing culture and how we're inundated with ideas that just seem off the wall to many of us, and uh, this can really help guide us through. So today we're looking at talking about the subject of worldview. How should we get started on doing that? Well, if we're going to be talking about worldview and what that is and how it affects us, it really has to start with something personal. And uh, a way to do that is I can tell my own story and uh, you can hear where I'm coming from, what my story, how it affects my worldview. And it'll help us as we go forward to be thinking, how do we make this concrete? Because a lot of these topics philosophy and culture, they get very heady very quickly, right? They get, they're somewhat abstract and we're going to, it's better to make them concrete. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about your story then. That sounds great. Yeah. So born in a Christian family in South Carolina, my name is Jake Ballard. Yeah. Like you said, I am a pastor in South Bend, Indiana, and I uh, have been a pastor for a number of years now. I was born in South Carolina and I grew up in a faithful church. I was at Guthrie Grove Church of God and got baptized when I was young. The start of my testimony was just raised in a Christian family, you know. What really began my reshaping of who I am and where God began to shape me was that my mom was diagnosed with cancer in January of 2005. Through that year, she got real sick and went through a lot of treatment and there was ups and downs in the summer. We thought she may make a recovery. I was going back to high school for the first time. I was going back to school in August of 2005. My mom got real sick 
and she was put in hospice in the beginning of December and died in December of 2005. Wow, man, that must have been just crushing. Oh, yeah. As a young kid, it was extremely hard and come from a faithful family. And it was weird that we got to see someone who was strong, a powerful woman in the Lord, a teacher, a youth worker, the VBS director. She is what made me get into ministry because she threw me into every ministry that there was a possibility that I could be in. And to see her fall apart in that way was really difficult. But by the time December came around, especially the last half of the year, um, it wasn't a life that was beautiful. It was a life of pain. And right. so um, death became a, a a blessing and a curse at the same time. We were able to say goodbye. And we had mourned, so it didn't hurt as bad by the time she actually passed. The next month, January 16th of 2006, my grandma, uh, my mom's mom, who we always called Mima, had been suffering with a muscular disease for nine years. And she's like, she was the person who ran the junior church at the church. She couldn't use her muscles. Her muscles atrophied while she was living. So she couldn't bend her fingers. But I remember being at her house and her flipping the pages of the Bible while not being able to bend her fingers. Her being able to, she moved around the house on a scooter, but couldn't stand up. And yet every Sunday she was at church teaching kids because her mind was as sharp as ever. Mm -hmm. And she died on January 16 of 2006. So two huge blows to a kid in two months. And so- And how uh, old were you at this time? I was in ninth grade. So I had, let's see, if it was 2005, I was 14. Yeah, 14, because I turned 14 in April of 2005. So not even 15 yet. And uh, this is what's shaping me. I mean, I'd already been baptized. I was baptized a couple years before this, and um, this is what is going on in my world. And then in February of 2006, so the next month, my dad, who is healthy, had lost a bunch of weight recently. He and my mom had been doing a lot of the early 2000s fad diets, and he had lost a ton of weight, was in the best shape of his life. But he went to go play basketball, which he did all the time, and he fell down and had a heart attack on the basketball court and he died in February uh, 6 on February 6 of 2006. So three people, my mom, my grandma and my dad died in three months. And this heart attack was just out of nowhere, out of nowhere. He was the, I think he'd been the healthiest he'd been in his life. That's just bizarre. Yeah, Hmm. it is awful. And that was the one that when people, when I tell the story, that's the one that broke me. It was the one where I couldn't function at school. I couldn't keep my head straight. I didn't know what was going to happen next. It seems kind of crazy now, but I have to write these dates down because my brain doesn't remember the days. It's just a blur. After December 28th of 2005, basically every day after that's a, a kind of a blur. And the reason why this story matters beyond it being my story and a testimony that is, that shows what can happen. I had already been saved, but I didn't know if life was worth living. Hmm. It wasn't, and it wasn't that 
I heard the angels sing and, and God expressed to me why it's okay, why I have to keep going and how this will make me, make me stronger. What happened is that the church that was my family's church, the church that I had been born into became the church that Christ calls it to be. And they rallied around me. I had an amazing aunt and uncle who stepped in. They were part of my dad's will and they stepped in and I finished raising my brother myself and my sister my brother's a couple years older and my sister's four years younger they just stepped in and took up the mantle and they had no kids of their own and so they were kind of a perfect fit to to step in and and be a mom and a dad for kids who had lost theirs and hmm. um we love them and they had to now have three kids suffering with trauma as they're also dealing with the loss of their beloved sister and brother-in-law so in mm-hmm. our family was really close so they stepped in but what kept me going and what gave me grounding was that this the church rallied around us and i always put it in this terminology the church stepped in and they saved us they saved me specifically because i don't know if i would be alive or if i would be where i am today if they hadn't come in and said, you're not going to be a statistic. We're going to love you to life. We're going to make sure that you find your place among us. We're going to, we're going to keep on loving you. And was this all in the same church? Is this all at Guthrie Grove in South Carolina? Yeah, this Carolina? is all at Guthrie Grove. Absolutely. Because you don't have much of a Southern accent. You're right. It's, it's weird. I don't have a strong one. I've been out of the South for quite some time, but I didn't have a strong one when I was there. Just the where, where we were in South Carolina. I still say y'all and I basically inject sweet tea. So, you know, there's there's some Southern things left in me. Um, but <laughs> well, not, sweet tea is the true test of any Southerner. Absolutely. If you drink the <laughs> if you drink the non-sweetened stuff, you know, whatever. I, I pity you. I'm sorry you have a sad life. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. But, but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. What happened is that this church rallied around my family and they showed us the love of Jesus. And what happened... When I was called to be a pastor, which is a different story for a different time, when I felt the calling, I've always looked at it as I want to create places that can love hurting kids to life. I want to be a part of God changing people's hearts so that people can be ready to help kids through trauma, kids who have lost everything. That's what I want to create. So it's always looking back and going, is the church becoming a more loving, more open place for kids who are hurting, for people who are hurting? So when we talk about worldview and these big ideas, when we talk about culture, I'm not sure that everybody that was at Guthrie Grove has any knowledge of this stuff, but they were able to love and support and care for broken, hurting people. So that's the main point. When, when we talk about what does it mean to be the church, it is love, it is care, it is making sure that people know that they're valued, that God is not out there to get them, that this wasn't, that God is not out there saying, oh, I want to see these kids hurting. It's that they were, he wanted to love us on the other side of the pain. And so mm-hmm. when I bring this up, it's to say, get that, make sure you have that love. And then what I talk about now the fact that we have a worldview, the fact that this shapes us and changes us, 
that comes secondarily. And it makes us a much better witness. We can understand and put things in people's terms. The fact that we that I'm speaking in narratives rather than in uh, in carefully outlined bully. Yeah, propositions. That's a part of understanding culture. So there's a point there. There's a point to all of this. But I want to set that up because when we talk about specific ideas and specific worldviews, they're all coming out of what I've experienced, what my family has experienced, what my community has experienced. And, and that's going to be an important thing for as we go forward. So hold that in mind. Thanks for letting me share that. I hope that there's someone out there who's hearing this and saying, I want to make sure that my church is ready for the broken and the hurting, because that's obviously the key issue when it comes yeah. to uh, following in the life of Christ. It's just a staggering account that you share here, Jake, uh, and I really appreciate your honesty. And uh, obviously you have gotten to a place where you can talk about what happened without it uh, crippling you emotionally, which I think is a sign of having worked through it and of mental health. If I could just repeat back what I think I heard you say, you had these devastating losses, losses that would cripple anyone, that should cripple anyone. I mean, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, you, you really lost so much. Your, your mother, your grandmother, your father, you had to move in with your uncle and your aunt. And you're, what I hear you saying is that uh, through the support of other Christians and a community of faith, you were able to recover and heal from this trauma. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So how does this relate to worldview? That's our topic today. You had mentioned that these people aren't maybe weren't even necessarily aware of what their worldview is in their act of love and care. Uh, so how, do, how does this relate to worldview and culture and the kinds of topics we're going to be looking at today? That's a great question. And what we have to do is see what culture is, what a worldview is, and then we can go back and say, how does the story that we've set up in the beginning tie in? How does it affect everything? Because once we understand what a culture is and what a worldview is, especially that worldview part, we can see, oh, what does the the story, what does anyone's story, but we'll talk specifically because I know mine best, how does it play in? How do we see that how these things are connected? So you have to hold with me and then we'll get to that point. Does that make sense? Sounds good. Good. Awesome. So let's start by talking about culture, because one of the things that we're going to be talking about when we're talking about worldviews is we have to approach worldviews after getting a couple other things. And the first thing we got to talk about is the big soup that we're talking about is culture. Uh, Culture is a system of beliefs and practices that are built upon implicit assumptions that people make about themselves, about the world around them, and about ultimate realities. So when we're talking about culture in general, it's very often there are outward actions that represent inward, implicit, usually not very well thought through assumptions. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's just a reality, right? Because that's what people do all the time. So Because right, culture is uh, inherited. You just pick it up by, hey, this is how we do things around here, and and that's how you think and how you live. Yeah. One author described it as an integrated system of knowledge, beliefs, values, ideals, attitudes, behaviors, customs, institutions, symbols, and even products which bind a society together and give it a sense of identity, 
dignity, security, and continuity. And I really like that because it shows you that it's not just the deep down things, but it's even the products. It's even the fact that I can say golden arches and basically anyone in the West and anyone in the world that has been affected by American culture knows what that symbol means, right? So it's a, it's a symbol. When we say happy meal, we know what that's what we're talking about. That's a part of culture, whether we like it or not, whether you eat there or not, <laughs> right? It's, it's a part of what makes culture. So while anthropologists have suggested many levels of culture, we should concentrate on three. And that is external practices, internal values, and what we've said a couple times already, worldview. All three levels are interdependent and strongly influence each other. The, the things of culture that we see that are out in the world for everybody to observe, that's what we're going to call practices, even though okay. it may be something more than uh, just how we act. It's things like food. In the South, what do you have? Home cooking. You, you have thick, rich hearty, fatty foods. That's just what people think of <laughs> when people go to the South. And it's not wrong. It's part of our culture. It's Fried it's chicken. a part of a culture. Yeah, yeah exa exactly. You know, the good stuff, watermelon. It's it's part of what makes the South the South is, is having these great love for food and for gathering around the table. Um, when you take that into another culture, another type of culture, the church has potlucks or uh, hot dishes if you're in Minnesota or carry-ins if you're in the Midwest. Where, whatever you call them, it's this love of food, and it's it's bringing food together to share around a, a common table, right? That's a part of, of those cultures. You don't find many other places where potlucks are a common thing. It's not a part of every culture. It's not a part of many work cultures. It's not a part because that's not the, that's not the goal. This is meant for other things, for the values that drive us, and that we'll get to values in a second. We could talk about music, right? We have in older cultures, we have classical music, Baroque, uh, in cultures where people are crafting their own music, we have folk music. We also have the folk music of bluegrass from the Appalachian region, right? So mm -hmm. music is a part of culture. It's a thing that we do in, in urban areas. You have hip hop that springs up as an expression of the culture, different ages and different cultures have different styles of art. You know, we think of religious texts in particular, the Bible coming out of Judeo-Christian culture. It's art in a sense, right? Of course, it's true and it's got it and it's inspired, but it's still an artful rendering of the truth. We have things like the Mona Lisa and we have things like today, modern artists go towards video games or comic stand-up stuff, right? So art, it, it, all these different things that we're pulling out these cultural practices are externals, things we can see, hear, smell, taste, or touch. It's architecture, music, food, clothing, language, transportation, and even hairstyles are part of culture that are the externals, the practices that exhibit to the world what culture we're a part of. So that sounds like what you can see and hear and taste and touch and smell, sort of like our what we can perceive with our senses. Yeah. Of, of what's around us, whether it's yeah. a song that we love or the kind of car we drive, you know, yeah, all and, these and different things are part of our, our culture. But in America, it seems like there's a lot of cultures. That's right? true. We could talk about Western culture, right? This mm -hmm. overarching thing that spans not only America, but also Western Europe, 
also Australia and Canada. That's a one way to define it. There's a United States culture that uh, is very idiosyncratically the United States. This idea of, of freedoms and rights and responsibilities and liberty being a core component, this mm-hmm. idea, that's, that's all. This yeah, and more, I would version. say more of an entrepreneurial spirit as well. Absolutely. This, uh, yeah. can-do attitude, you know, you and, can and, be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Absolutely. I don't think that's think as common in other places. Yeah, and that's that's all uh, American. But inside even American culture, like you were saying earlier, we have pockets of other cultures, subcultures. You know, we talked about the South earlier as its own subculture. You have inner city areas that are its their own type of subculture. Because when you go to South Kakalaki and you're in your <laughs> – there and experiencing that culture that's not what it's going to be like in the the heart of new york city right there's going to be a difference there and that's yeah, and and yeah. those are both going to be different than what it's like in south bend indiana so yeah, I, I i tell you I, I had a culture shock once when i went to went to guthrie grove to the church that you are from i was sitting there this is only a couple of years ago i was sitting there in their the room where they eat i forget what they called it they had all these flags on the wall and it looked like uh, an Arab symbol, like a uh, Middle Eastern type flags. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just so, it was like culture shock. Like, are these guys like supporting Turkey or Lebanon or like, what is going yeah. on here? And then it was just explained to me. I know exactly what you're going to say. That it's a state flag. Yes, it is. And the I'm the like, moon. I was like, wait, states have flags? Like, I didn't even realize. <laughs> and, and I'm sure I'm sure New York probably has a state flag. I don't know that I've ever seen it or care. Uh, but it was, you know, the state flag of South Carolina was so important that it was worthy of of putting in this prominent location, many of them all along the wall. And uh, that was like a little culture shock I experienced going down there. And I remember that talking to those who actually put, planned and put together that event, they were saying we wanted people to see our flag and experience our culture. Really, what they were what they were saying is we want them to experience our culture. But they said we want to make food that we would eat. We want to have our flag flying. We want them to feel the hospitality of the South. And all of that is just saying we wanted them to experience our South Carolina Southern culture, and we wanted to welcome them in. And that that's great. You know, it's, it's expressing and sharing culture. And like you said, that's a different thing for them. You know, everybody in the South has seen the flag and knows about it because the crescent moon and what, how palm trees have affected Southern history, right? So that's why it's there. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a thing that you may not see in other churches or other places, right? In some churches, they fly an American flag. I know Guthrie Grove does that. Other churches, their, their culture is, we don't want to show any support for any nation. We're something different than that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's understanding what do these practices show us? And really, that actually gets us to something deeper. What the practices show us get us to the next level down, something more fundamental underneath and supporting the practices. And those are values. Values are cultural ideals that link abstract philosophy of our worldview, which we'll talk about in a sec, to concrete practices. Imagine that we observed in a culture the practice of people in a hurry people working multiple jobs, the development of a quote-unquote gig economy, doing a lot of things to make a lot or maybe even doing a lot of things to make a little money. If we ask those people who were part of that culture 
they may say that their ideal and their values were that of, quote, efficiency, end quote, or time as money. And possibly we would begin to see that their values are that business goals, monetary, financial goals, trump even personal relationships. A culture where people practice meditation may reflect a worldview of sort of a, mysti a mystical worldview, uh, reflecting values of internal harmony. So values are internal ideals that can be boiled down and expressed as what, what are these people striving for? Again, I, we've already talked about it. In the South, that's hospitality. We talk about home cooking because that's what we want to experience. We want to, we want to welcome people into our homes and feed them. The joke is that grandma won't let you leave without having food you know, in your pockets or having fed you, right? That's because that's an important part of Southern culture. Potlucks in the church represent the value of fellowship of community. It's not about the eating and the caring so much as it is what happens above the table, not on it, but above it. And that's talking, that's sharing life, that's learning about what each person has been going through. The reason why music and art and architecture and language are so important is because they represent something deep about us, something more deep than just, oh, this is, just happens to be what I'm wearing today. Practices very often talk about a value. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So the value yeah. is sort of what's behind the activity you can see or hear. The value is what's driving that. Uh, yeah. But you said there's also a level deeper than that as well, right? And there is. And that's what we get to when we're, and what we're really focusing on for these few episodes is the even more deeper than the values is what we call the worldview. The worldview of a culture describes the deep philosophical assumptions about the purpose of life and the nature of reality. Central assumptions, concepts, premises, more or less shared by members of a culture or subculture. At the core of culture is worldview. And these are, the, like I said, the deepest beliefs about life, the meaning of life and what, what's going on in the cosmos. So when we think about these, what what do worldview affect? They are the nature of reality, God, and if there is an afterlife, whether the physical world really exists, whether people are fundamentally good or bad, whether we have free will or life is controlled by the environment or by God or by the fates, the reality of absolute truth or the lack thereof. And we could go on and on to describe what is a worldview made up of. But it's important to see that these are deep, core things that shape us and who we are. And the way this happens is that our worldviews are things that are really inherited by us. You've already used that terminology, and I think it's a really great one. We get world, a worldview, and that bubbles up into values. And we, these values are expressed in different ways. One worldview will produce different values, and those values will produce practices. So that's why we, we start with saying, what are the practices? And if we can see those and kind of group those together and see what's going on, we can get down into the value that's there. What is driving these things to happen? If we get down even more, we may find a worldview. Mm -hmm. But these things are harder to see as we get deeper. We can easily see practices. And most people don't analyze or think too much about them as they participate, but at least they may question, right? You've heard the, should we do this this way or should we not? And that's a part of every, they, they see their practices. You may go, you know, that's just the way we always did it, right? 
do we cut right. the ends off of the the bread even though we've got a pan that's big enough you know there, or whatever it is you know there's always these things of why do we do it this way and oh it was it was easier back then so we may question these different practices that we do but they're just a part of our life but if we go down deeper values are a bit harder to see they're less obvious they are less concrete and that's why we could put it in a couple different ways when we were talking about these values of efficiency or time as money we talk about these people in a hurry and the gig economy what are the values I and mean, we have to turn a different a couple different turns of phrase before we may get what's going on there and because they are harder to see because they are less concrete unless we are challenged on our values we very rarely address them to even begin to understand them so as we talk about this the last level worldviews are even deeper and even harder to see. They are even harder to challenge. And many times we can't see our worldviews when we first start looking. The reason we use this term, this world, this idea of the deepest assumptions of our lives, and we call it a worldview, is because it's not something that we look at, but the way in which we view the world. It colors how we see our world. Many, many writers speak about a worldview as glasses that make us see the world in a specific way. Lenses on our glasses. So if we have on red glasses, everything will be red. Looking at the world through rose-colored glasses makes everything look happy and cheery. I mean, that's the phrase there. So when I grew up, I had a worldview that was a Southern United States Christian. And the worldview shaped the values and the beliefs that I had as a child. It shaped my practices. It made me and my family participate in some practices and refrain from others. And when I looked around at the world, that's what I saw. I saw the world through a lens as a Southern United States Christian. So these things, worldview, values, and practices are ultimately what make culture. Okay. So as far as the worldview, the the analogy you're using is like a lens through which you see the world. Yeah. And here's here's what's so interesting about that analogy is that most of us are not aware that we're wearing glasses, or if we are wearing glasses, we don't even know how to take them off and look at them because they're just how we see everything. They're how Absolutely. they're what we look through to see everything. So this is really an important exercise because there are ways in which worldviews have shifted over time, and we are we are living through a, a very significant shift. And you can see it between the generations that the the boomer generation just just really does look fundamentally differently at the world and at events than uh, somebody from a younger generation, say a millennial. And, uh, you know, I think there's some degree to which you're always going to have differences in, in generations and young people eventually become old people. And, yeah. you know, some of that just kind of resolves on its own. But um, the power of worldview is that it's able to color how we determine and think about our values, which then get reflected in our practices and how, how we interact with each other in powerful ways because, precisely because, nobody's talking about the worldview, nobody's aware of the assumptions underneath everything, and so that makes it the most interesting, in my opinion, of all these different categories of culture to really focus on. What do you think? 
Absolutely. When, when you talk about practices, right? You do one thing, I do another. How we cook, the food that we have may be different across culture, but it may not be wrong or bad, whatever the food is, right? Sometimes you can say, okay, what there are certain styles of dress that are maybe immodest, but the question then would be, well, what is the value and therefore the worldview that pushes some people to dress that way? Why is immodesty bad? The fact that we even have the value of modesty means that there's something in our own worldview. And that's exactly what you're saying. We don't ever think about that, but I just said, you know, okay, there may not be bad things, but there's bad dress. Oh, but that's that's coming from my worldview. It's coming from the way I was raised, the way I grew up in Christian homes and had Christian values and friends and people who tried to dress modestly. That's all coming out there. Absolutely. So it, and it's, it is the most important point because it's the hardest to analyze. But once we begin to see it, like you said, we start to see how the world is shifting and changing right now. And there's been shifting and happening happening for maybe even 40 something years, but it's really starting to come out of academia at this point and affect the world in political and major ways. And that's something that we need to be aware of as Christians. Um, because, and I think it's important, one of the things I wanted to talk about is why is knowing what's going on in culture so important? Because understanding what's going on with people's worldview and, and culture can help us in, in a few different ways. First of all, it, it's about evangelism, right? If we're talking right. about what's going on in culture, part of it is evangelism. Part of being a Christian is reaching people from around the world. Jesus said that the disciples were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church started to spread the message first in familiar territory. They knew what was going on in Jerusalem. They knew what was happening in the surrounding region of Judea, and they understood a bit what was going on with the Samaritans. But as you spread out from that, as you go into Asia Minor, and as you go into Greece, and as you go into Italy, the world shifts radically. And this is why Paul writes, I became all things to all people so that I might save some. Paul tried to understand people. He spoke with their cultural artifacts about Jesus. Think about what he did on Mars Hill. He used their gods to speak about God. Right. He understood where they were coming from. He knew that talking to them about certain things were, was going to be harder. He didn't start with, okay, there's a Jewish man who has risen from the dead, because he knew he'd lose them right from the get-go. Well, especially at crucifixion, because that would be yeah. just universally understood to be such an embarrassing, shameful way of dying. And combining Absolutely. crucifixion with the word king or messiah is just, it's just hot ice cubes, man. It's just not going to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. In their, in their culture. In ours, it's Absolutely. like, oh, we have a song about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's because we've inherited a culture that has a very different view of what crucifixion would be. And it took the empire that killed him saying this is an official state religion before, you know, everybody was kind of on board with it, right? So it, it took some time to change. But you're right. It, it's something that is very different. We look at it differently. In, in our day, Paul, you know, he used their gods to speak about their gods. He quoted the different times that we see him preach. He quotes their own poets. He knows their culture. He knows because it's the culture that he's around, that he's trying to speak to. And yeah, so the people he's trying to reach. So he cares enough to understand where they're coming from. And uh, sorry to cut you off, Jake, but no, you, that's you, you, you remind me of um, 
the stubborn Christian, let's call this person, this hypothetical person, uh, who says, what do I need to learn all of that for? What, what's the point of that? These pe- I'm right. These people are wrong. I have the Bible. They have their opinion. I win. Are you sure that person's hypothetical? <laughs> well, if, you were, if you're thinking that in your own head while you're listening to this now, maybe the shoe fits. But uh, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there just like, man, I don't, I, why should I go through all this effort to understand w- uh, the wrong way of thinking about this or the wrong way of doing this? And what you're saying is, well, hold on a second. This is what we find in the Bible itself. We see this with Jesus. Jesus talked to Pharisees in a way that made sense to Pharisees. What do Pharisees do? They argue about the law. Did Jesus come out, come at them with uh, Aristotelian logic? No. He no. came at them in the, in the same way that they understand. And Absolutely. so it was with Pilate. When he interacted with Pilate, he talked about authority. He talked about kingdom. He talked about power. That's, that's the world of a Roman governor. Uh, Paul's in, in, in Athens... And he quotes a couple of their poets, and and he brings in resurrection late in his presentation. He doesn't start with it because to the Greek mind, resurrection is just gross. Why do you want your body back? We see over and over in Scripture where people do this. When they're trying to reach people, when they're trying to really be like God, who so loved the world he gave his only son, that what they do is they try to build bridges and reach across. And I think the alternative is to say, well, they just need to come to me. They need to come to us. They need to realize that we're right. Well, how's that working for you? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You're hitting the nail on the head. I want to look at what Paul did and think about what would he do if he was in our world today? Well, he would work with people in their view of what sin is or guilt or shame or punishment or truth to talk about the God-given view of truth, the God-given view of sin, the God-given view about all the rest. So I don't deny that when we when we come as a, as a Christian, we're coming with what we should say is is true. I don't think that we should try and say that we're, we, we don't think that this stuff is true. But I do think it's important to recognize that Paul started, like you said, where they are, and he brought them to it. When it came to the point of, would he give up the resurrection and talking about the resurrection to win people to, well, no, because you're losing Christ in trying to win people to Christ. And that doesn't make any sense. Paul, like we said earlier, he says, I became all things to all people so that I might save some. If someone listens to him, he wants them to get to the point where they have truth, but it has to be coming from understanding where they're coming from. And if we never begin to understand where they're coming from, then we, we miss them. And like you said, we, we can't expect them to come to us and be like, hey, we want to know more, even though you've never tried to explain it. And we have all the, they'll never walk in the doors. And that's a, it's actually an important point about our culture right now. We'll be talking about that we're in a time when the people don't walk through church doors. If that's your goal, no. if your goal is to create a revival and have a big tent revival and have a bunch of people come and give their life because they're just nominal Christians, but not dedicated you're in for a world of hurt because that's not, it's not going to happen in our culture today. And even just the word sin that you were, you were uh, using just a minute ago, as a Christian, as a Bible literate person, I don't need any explanation on what sin is. It's simple. It's an easy concept. It, it's grounded in my understanding of morality and God as the lawgiver of morality. So, uh, it's very easy for me. 
Now, if I'm talking to a random person in my part, my neck of the woods here, upstate New York, where there are probably equal portions of nominal Catholics or more more, uh, more post-Catholics, people whose parents were Catholic, but that now they don't go anymore. Yeah. They understand sin. The, you know, the Catholics are pretty good on understanding sin. But then uh, the other part of people in my area are just secular people, people that maybe are another generation down from the post-Catholics where they're like, you know, my parents didn't really do anything, and I'm not really doing anything, and as far as religion goes, and I'm just uh, I'm trying to be happy, and I'm trying to be successful or satisfied or have some adventures in life or whatever it is that really particularly motivates them. And I talk to this person about sin, and they're just like, what are you talking about? Yeah, this doesn't that make any mean? sense to me in the world. Are you, are you talking about mistakes? Everybody makes mistakes. But they don't, they don't have a category for that. And they would say, well, why would I have to be punished? Because everybody makes mistakes. If I, why, right. why is there, why is sin bad? You know, everybody does it like, or whatever, whatever, however you term it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I'm really interested in that comment you made a minute ago where you said, if you think a revival is where you get a bunch of nominal Christians and you preach them hellfire and repentance in the day of the Lord, and then they all come forward and hand their lives over that is something that I think a lot of us have seen in the past, uh, but if it's if it's truly evangelism, if it's if it's if you're speaking to somebody that's not a Christian, that has never been a Christian, what are their assumptions about Christianity, and what is their response to a judgment-heavy approach of the day of the Lord is at hand? It's not going to probably end well for ninety percent of that kind of situation, right? Absolutely. I think it's important to recognize, and I think a, a great book on some of this stuff that I really enjoyed kind of going through was this author talking about they like Jesus, but not the church. And he had a really interesting thing where as he was looking around the world, and especially he comes from Southern California, the author's name is Dan Kimball. But what he says in that book, people really like Jesus, They see Jesus, and sometimes it's the Jesus they've made in their head, but they see him as a liberator of women, as someone who comes and loves and teaches, who had a Christ consciousness and was enlightened, a guru of sorts. So they have this idea of Jesus, and then they look at Christians, and they're turned off because they think Jesus is this great guy, and then there are a bunch of people who don't live like him. And... When we come and it is hellfire and brimstone and turn your life and make it right and we're going to fix the world, we're going to call this event a crusade. You know, Billy Graham's crusades, they were effective in the day, but today people have read the history of the crusades more, or at least they think they know the history of the crusades. And so crusades are points of low, where the church was acting at its worst, these wars waged in the name of Christ, that would Christ have actually enjoyed it? How how do we think about war in general, right? So all those things are important to understand that, like like we said earlier, people are not, and we can talk about this as we get farther into our discussions, but people are not nominal Christians needing to be revived. They are, like you said, I, I like those terms, post-Catholic or post-Christian or secular or a big one is spiritual but not religious. I see, and yeah. you're going to have to speak to those people 
not to the ones who their parents were Christian and they just haven't made it their own yet. You're not, that's mm-hmm. not the world we live in. Well, no, there are some of those too. They're just not the majority anymore. Right. It's not the number that made Billy Graham have so many conversions and he did the right thing. He was working at the right time. What if we could cre- recreate a Billy Graham for our day, he would not do it would not be possible to do today with the same passion and fervor what Billy Graham did when he did his conversions and revivals. It just the the world changes, and that's something we need we need to be aware of. If we want to pe- reach people from other cultures, we need to understand the worldviews that are coming into contact. Right? That's we need to understand where they are. But I think it's important, Sean, for us to also say that if this starts with knowing ourselves. Right. Socrates was onto something when he said, know thyself. Knowing the culture into which we evangelize will be important, but we also need to understand the culture that we're coming out of, right? Because if I come, uh, for example, we'll talk about my story. I came out of the South, right? I'm a Southern United States Christian. That was the mm-hmm. culture that I was in. And if I come to people with the idea that Jesus would have signed up for the NRA, right? That that's that, that these idea, some of the, or things that people think that Southern Christians believe, right? That Jesus uh-huh. would have been, uh, that Jesus would vote Republican, right? Or that Jesus that, would never drink any alcohol. Right. The, exactly. That those, if those are the ideas, that's your Southern Baptist friend, right? So if, 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 <laughs> If those are the ideas that we come and we say, you know, this is what it means to be a Christian, and we don't ever analyze it, that's coming with the worldview. It's coming with a worldview that says we really have made Jesus into our own image. We've been given the idea that in the South, you stand up and you fight, you show your true colors, these colors don't run kind of thing. And is that was Jesus, how to put this nicely, I love my Southern brothers and sisters, but Jesus wasn't a nationalist. Jesus wasn't Jerusalem first. When, when he came to the people of Israel, he cared about who was following God in that group. He wasn't my nation, right or wrong, let's kick the Romans out. He was the people of God are the ones that I've come to call. And Rome is the one who persecuted and the one who killed him, but it was with the help of the leaders of Jerusalem, right? So he wasn't a, and and sometimes as United States Christians, we think the United States is this great, wonderful, amazing thing. And we talk as if we're not a part of a broader movement. We're not part of something bigger. And that's understanding if we went to places, getting back to where this comes to evangelism, we went to other places with this idea that America is so great and America is Christian. And then we bring American culture with us as we evangelize. That's problematic because America's got a lot of other cultures and stuff in it. We, If we bring Christ, but we also bring Hollywood, people are going to get confused when those two things mingle together. So we need to understand what's our worldview? What are we bringing with us? What's the culture that we're a part of? And are we bringing only the worldview that the Bible supports? Does that make sense? I know that was a lot. Yeah, yeah. no, I think this is a great start, and I really look forward to future episodes where we can delve more deeply into modernism, postmodernism, the biblical worldview, and look at how all this plays out. Is there anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion in this uh, in this time we have? Uh, yeah, just one more thing. As we're going through, and as you are thinking about this and mulling over it for the next week or so until you listen to the next episode, 
take a moment, take some time to say, what is my worldview? What are the practices, the values th that are undergird your experience as a Christian? You and I need to be addressing this. So be thinking about how, what, what are the th what are the fundamental assumptions that I have? That takes work, and it does take time. And so I understand that this may be a new experience coming at these different ideas, but it's important to reach down and say, what are what are the things that I do? How would I describe myself and my values, my worldview, so that I can speak to those who look, think, and act differently than me? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today, Jake. It's been great, and uh, thank you. May have ruffled some feathers, but sometimes our feathers need to get ruffled, and uh, that uh, that that can sometimes make us think and make us question. And really, that's what we're looking to do in this series: is to get ourselves to be more reflective and self-discerning, as well as culturally aware and other discerning, so that we can be able to interact with people in a way that makes sense to them and that we can fulfill the Great Commission ultimately, because that's that's what we're called to do as Christians, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for helping us do that a little bit today. It's my pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can do that at restitutio.org under episode 370, Postmodernism Part 1. If you'd like to get in touch with Jacob Ballard, you can do so at the Timberland Bible Church website, which I have in the show notes for this episode, as well as the book that he mentioned. We got a couple of comments in on our last episode, 369 Civil Discourse with Peter Miano, that I wanted to read out. Rhett Major writes, This is a very important discussion to put out right now, as we see so much polarization in the nation and even in the body of Christ. Both you, Sean and Peter, are great examples of the body of how to bridge our divides and listen to each other respectfully and get out of our own echo chambers. I sure love you both and will be sharing this podcast with others. God bless you. Well, thanks so much, Rhett, for the support there. I agree with you. This is a really important subject. Learning how to talk to people that we disagree with is not natural, and it is increasingly lacking good examples. So I really appreciate the example that Peter Miano supplied and really would love to see Christians known for our ability to listen, our ability to humbly consider other points of view on different issues, and that even if we don't agree, even if we don't, even if we can't compromise our deeply held convictions, especially when they're founded on Scripture, that we would be modeling a way of engaging with issues that really can testify to the light that is within us. After all, many times, fear is the motivator behind outrage, isn't it? And when we have a hope that anchors our soul, when we have confidence in our God and experiences of living His way that, that works, uh, we don't need to have fear driving us. We can, we can listen, and we can engage, we can ask questions. I think this is really an opportunity for us as Christians to retain diverse communities in a world that is seeking to section everyone off into little ghettos of echo chambers that only think a certain way. And uh, I think the church can be a real example of multi-generational community, of diverse racial community, of uh, diversity of, of having men and women, and various political viewpoints and other disagreements, and yet maintaining a unity across all those lines. Also, Carlos wrote in 
saying, Mr. Miano seems to reflect the majority Christian view that our goal is to promote relationships, which, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds awfully like the so-called social gospel movement. But I think historians like Bart Ehrman are right when they say, and then he quotes Bart Ehrman's book, uh, Jesus, the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, uh, where Ehrman says, there is little to suggest that Jesus was concerned with pushing social reform in any fundamental way in this evil age. In his view, present-day society and all its conventions were soon to come to a screeching halt when the Son of Man arrived from heaven in judgment on the earth. Far from transforming society from within, Jesus was preparing people for the destruction of society. Only when God's kingdom arrived would an entirely new order appear in which peace, equality, and justice would reign supreme. This kingdom, though, would not arrive through the implementation of new social reform programs. It would arrive with a cosmic judge, the Son of Man, who would overthrow the evil and oppressive forces of this world. End quote. Carlos continues, Now, while it's true that Jesus urged his followers to begin to implement the ideals of that coming future kingdom in the present, it should not be confused with the first step toward reforming society from the grassroots, but as a preparation for the new world that was soon to come, when the present evil age would be brought to its climactic end with the arrival of the kingdom. Part of that was, again, a quotation from Ehrman. A couple of thoughts in response to Carlos here. Uh, first of all, promoting relationships I would say is is not a majority Christian view. What I see as the majority Christian view today is hunkering down in our ideological trenches and taking shots at straw men that really don't well represent the opposite side. Take, for example, groups like John MacArthur's ministry versus the Red Letter Christian's ministry, and I I don't see engagement. What I see instead is taking shots at the ideological enemy and really banding together with people outside of the church who who also agree on that particular social issue. I'm not seeing relationships across divides these days, so I I think I'm going to have to disagree with you that this is a majority Christian view. You label Peter Miano's statements about civil discourse as the so-called social gospel movement. That's a bit of a stretch. Whether whether Peter Miano would self-identify as a social gospel person, uh, I really don't know. But I can tell you that the idea of civil discourse when there's disagreement is something that is equally applicable to conservatives and liberals, that is equally relevant to those going back to Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel movement, as well as hardcore doctrinal-focused ministries as well. And and this is why it's all throughout Scripture. It's not just in the teachings of Jesus, which is very clear that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves and even love our enemies, but also in other parts of the New Testament, like where James says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. As far as Ehrman's uh, statement, I think we have to be careful taking the uh, the view of someone who's dedicated his life to fighting against Christianity and to exposing Christianity as fraudulent as our um, guiding light in matters of how we as Christians should behave when we disagree with each other or disagree with those who are outside the church. I do agree with much of what Ehrman said there about the kingdom coming, although I'm not 
100% sure about Jesus expecting it to arrive immediately. I'm kind of on the fence on that. I've got a few different interpretations I'm still considering on that issue. But my key category for ethics and integrating that with the kingdom is the word proleptic, which is the idea that we are ambassadors of the coming kingdom who have already been given the lifestyle of the age to come, and we are called to live it out as a witness, as a city on a hill, as a light of the world, as salt, that we are, that, that we are to be different than the world and to model holistic humanity, which is what we see in the prophecies about the kingdom, where there's peace, where there's justice, where there's righteousness and a relationship with God. These are the qualities that we as a church are seeking to embody. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that this is going to change the world. If that is your aim, is is to change the world, then it's going to be very easy to get sucked into partnering with other groups that don't agree with the Christian means of change. They might agree with the Christian ends, but not the means. And I think what we see throughout Scripture is that the means are just as important as the ends when it comes to biblical ethics. So we are a community of the kingdom called to embody the kingdom, just like Jesus did in his ministry, by calling people to repentance and doing so in a really holistic way. You look at Jesus, I mean, he reached out to the sinner. He didn't, he didn't stand on the corner with a megaphone and, and tell all the sinners that they're worthless and they're going to perish. No, he engaged with them. Now, he did call them to repentance. It's true. And that's a key part of the kingdom message is, is a sense of urgency and a sense of repentance. But it's not as an attack. It's as an invitation. And Jesus would reach out to people and invite them back into a relationship with God. And, and this is really, I think, the calling of the church and making disciples of all nations, especially in this particular nation, the United States of America, where I am, uh, but also in many other places, this is the case where, as Christians, we have a huge opportunity right now to embody this, this future wholeness by treating each other the, the way that Scripture calls us to treat each other, rather than devolving into scoring cheap points by rage posting, by canceling each other, by slandering and gossiping about one another. This is really a live issue for me, and it's something that came up in today's episode and will continue to come up in the next three weeks as Jake Ballard leads us through this series on postmodernism. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. If you'd like to engage with those comments, you can find those at 369, episode 369, Civil Discourse with Peter Miano. We've had some good feedback on that post, also on social media. Uh, if you are not part of that, please join the Facebook group, uh, the Restitutio Facebook group, and, uh, and engage. That's it for today. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We are a 501c3, so if you're looking for tax-deductible donations, we can certainly make that happen. Thanks to everyone for a great 2020. I'm looking forward to some exciting stuff in 2021. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.